Uh, Now, as we've said in almost every sermon in this series, Jesus wants us to be not just people who come to church from time to time, uh, people who get baptized as a cultural rite of passage. No, no, he wants us to be disciples, followers. He wants us to enter into a way of existence, a way of living that is informed and inspired by his teaching and his example, empowered by his grace. So in tangible terms, how does this cash out? What does this mean concretely? Today, the answer is pretty straightforward. As we've just heard in the text, what Jesus says today is that a disciple of his, a disciple of mine, he says, is simply someone who repents. Someone who repents. And so that's what we're going to explore. And I should add that it's a good time to explore this theme of repentance because we are coming into the season of Advent. It starts next Sunday, in fact. And Advent, as some of you will know, is a penitential season. What's that mean? That means it's a time in the church calendar uh, where owning our weaknesses and neediness, acknowledging our sinfulness, the fact that a lot of us are hot messes, as they say these days, it's a time when all of that comes into special focus. And we do that to prepare ourselves to receive Jesus Christ with fresh joy at Christmas as we remember his coming. So it's a good time to ponder repentance. Let me reminisce for a moment. Um, In 2017, Cindy and I moved to England and we started having kids, and so in 2020, we bought a car over in England, Uh, and I remember thinking how nice it was to have that car to drive around. We didn't have to carry all the groceries home on the bicycle, for example, which we did. You should see the bags that we could put onto a bicycle. Um, So I thought it was so nice to have a car, and I also remember thinking how nice the other folks on the road over there in England seemed to be, because when I first started driving my car around, it was sometimes the case that other drivers would look over and energetically wave at me, kind of like that, and I think to myself, what a friendly place, almost like South Carolina, who would have thought? But then a guy rolled down his window and he hollered out, he said, you're driving on the wrong side of the road. Oh dear, that's the polite version of what I said at that moment. For lo and behold, it just so happens, and this actually had, did happen a number of times, that I would forget I was in England, England where they drive on the wrong side of the road. And so I'd have to turn around rapidly. And that's exactly what Jesus says his disciples got to do. You've got to turn around. You've got to change the direction of your life. You have to repent. Now that word repent in Greek, it literally means just to do an about face, to start going the other way. And that's what Jesus says we got to do if we would follow him, if we would inhabit the kingdom of God, which is where he lives and where he wants us to live. But why do we need to turn around? Why do good churchgoers like us need to repent? That question might be in some of your minds right now. Look again at verse 1, if you would. Uh, A group of people have come over to Jesus, and they're talking about a horrible tragedy that happened. We don't exactly know what this is all about. Uh, Evidently, we infer that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, ordered some sort of massacre of Jewish people, and in the aftermath, the blood of humans got mixed up with the blood of animals, and it was a nasty and offensive affair. People were talking about it. We don't know why this happened, but we do know that Jesus sees very quickly through the questions about this incident that are being put to him. And here's the deal. It was pretty common in this period for people to believe that if a tragedy occurred, it was an act of judgment by God, and that the victims must have done something really, really wrong, something to deserve the tragedy which befell them. And that seems to be the attitude that's at play in the people who are talking to Jesus today. They are looking to him to affirm what I like to call the karma worldview. Um, That's still around, isn't it? It's the idea, the sentiment that 
uh, good people get good things and bad people get bad things. That's the karma worldview. They want Jesus to affirm that, but Jesus won't go there. Uh, he's not going to indulge the karma worldview. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, Do you think the people who died at the hand of Pilate were worse than you? I tell you, no. No, sir. No, ma'am. Jesus was from South Carolina. And then he goes on, and he says, let me give you another example. Do you think that the folks who died when that tower over in Siloam fell down, do you think that those people were worse than you, more sinful than you? If so, you're wrong. Don't think that way. And instead, what you need to do is R-E-P-E-N-T, repent. And there's another song for Aretha Franklin right there. Jesus is not mincing words. He's blowing up the karma worldview because he knows the human heart. He knows our propensity to self-deceit. He knows that we're always seeking to justify ourselves. He knows that deep down inside every one of us is a profound existential crisis and insecurity that says, I am not okay, I'm not good enough. And therefore we're desperate. Desperate to prove ourselves that we are good people, decent people, and that those other people over there are the problem with the world. The world's made of good people and bad people, and I want to be in the right camp with the good people. We see that pattern of thinking everywhere. We see it in the media. We see it in election cycles. We saw a lot of it the last few weeks. We see it in churches, and you better believe we see it in our own lives. Well, Jesus blows all that up. No, there are not good people and bad people. There are not moral and religious people and people who are not. But if you want to put people into two groups, let me give you a better category for doing that. And what's that category? There are people who repent and people who do not. There are people who recognize their brokenness, their self-centeredness, people who see that they are, at best, complicit in all the problems of the world, and then there are people who don't, people who keep pointing their fingers at others, their boss, their spouse, their kids, they're the problem, my kids' teachers, they're the problem, that other church, it's the problem, that this whole system, it's the problem, everything's the problem but me. They never see their own role, their own complicity in the sin and mess and brokenness of the world and of their lives. Here's a famous story about the celebrated Victorian writer G.K. Chesterton. The London Times, big paper over there in Britain, proposed a question to the nation's literary readers. He, and the question was this, what's wrong with the world? Write in and tell us. Give us your answer. And they received a lot of lengthy and erudite and eloquent responses. And then they received G.K. Chesterton's response. And it was, dear sirs, I am yours, G.K.C. There are people who can say that and people who can't or won't. There are people who repent and those who don't. Which, which type are you? Which type are you? Bearing all that in mind, let me offer a little bit of application. Maybe you're somebody who's been living far from God. You've been indulging some of the deepest, darkest fantasies in your mind and imagination. What should you do? Repent. It's never too late. You can always do it again. On the other hand, maybe you're somebody who's been a Christian for many, many years. You come to church most Sundays, you know the Bible pretty well, you try to walk in the ways of God. What should you do? Repent. Because you never outgrow your need for it. And if you think you have, you're sorely mistaken, you're self-deceived. Repent. That is the call of Jesus. Let's think a little bit more about repentance. What's the purpose of repentance? How do we do it? These are really pressing questions, and the parable that Jesus tells, verses 6 through 9, gives us some answers to these really pressing questions. Verse 6, to begin, sheds light on the purpose of repentance. What's the end goal here? What's the man in this little story doing at the beginning? 
He's out there looking for fruit. He's looking for fruitfulness. Now, in the Bible, and we've talked about this a few times before, I think, fruitfulness is just a word for what God wants for all of us. It's an image for our growth and the character and likeness of Jesus Christ. You see, from God's point of view, a fruitful life is a life filled with patience and peace. It's a life marked by generosity and kindness, a life filled with gentleness, with self-control, with joy, and with love. That's what God wants for us. He wants me to be a person with all those traits. And I'm guessing that's probably what most of you in the room want as well. Does anyone not want that? Raise your hand. Nobody? Good. We all want that. Who doesn't want to be more kind-hearted and generous? Less trapped by the impulse to selfishness? Less controlled by fear and anxiety? Anger? We all want to be free from that. Don't you want that? That's what God wants for you too. And that is what repentance leads to. That's the purpose of repentance. It is a key element in being transformed into the best version of ourselves, a Christ-like version. Now, when you start pining for that sort of transformation, when you start wanting to be a fruitful person, when you're ready to do repentance, how do you go about it? What does it entail? There are several things I want to mention on this front. To begin, you've got to recognize that true repentance the kind of repentance that will transform me into a more beautiful and glorious person involves getting to the roots. Getting to the roots. That's what the gardener does in verse 8. He doesn't focus on the branches. He's not out there uh, trimming and pruning the leaves. He's in the dirt. He's digging around. He's in the roots. He's putting fertilizer and manure down there because fruitfulness does not come until the roots are sorted out, until the roots are healed. Now, what does that mean in the context of a human life? This is about letting God into the places of sin and idolatry and brokenness in my heart. Letting God into all those dark places. Letting his grace and mercy flow into all those places, the dark places, the wounded places in our life, in my heart. Now, let me further unpack this. Let's say you have a problem with embellishing or embellishment. You're someone who tends to uh, exaggerate, maybe expand the facts or creatively arrange the facts when talking about things. And you do that to a point where there's an issue with your truthfulness. In other words, you're a liar. And one day you realize that with gripping conviction. What do you do in that situation? Do you just will yourself to stop lying, to drop the habit? It's not usually that simple, is it? To the contrary, you got to get to the root of your line, and you have to repent there. You have to seek change, and you have to turn around there. That's what you have to do. That's the key to real change and real fruitfulness. And so perhaps you need to think about why you lie. Why do you lie? Some people are dishonest because they're mentally lazy. They don't bother to get all the facts right, so they tell lies. Others of us bend the truth because we care too much about the opinion of other people. We're people pleasers. And so that's why we lie. Or perhaps you lie just to generate excitement and get attention. There's a lot of people in America who are lying for that reason right now, I think, just to generate excitement and get attention. Those are roots. That's what needs tending to. We've got to identify and repent of the deep sicknesses in our hearts. Profound self-centeredness, an insatiable need for approval, the failure to believe that God's love is enough for me. The failure to believe that God's love is enough for me. 
That's repentance at the root. And that is the key to fruitfulness. We're not talking about behavior modification here. We're talking about profound internal change, which is why a good question to ask yourself is this. Do you know what your roots are? Have you pushed back the mulch, gotten out the spade, looked down there in the ground to see what the roots are and what the problems are down there? Have you gotten into the dirt and into the depths of your heart to ask why you might lie or why you're graspy and even greedy? why you might be riddled with anxiety, why that anger's there, why you're so impatient, why you indulge sexual lust, why you so often use words that lacerate other people and yourself. Why do you do all that? You've got to get to the roots. And you've got to let the grace and mercy of God, of Christ, bring healing and holiness into those dark places. This is what real repentance is all about. Now, I'm well aware that going down into the roots like that can be a terrifying prospect, and it's not easy. It can be emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and even physically draining. I know that because I've done this work, and I know a lot of you have done this work and are doing it too. God is aware of this difficulty, of this challenge, and he knows, you better believe he knows, we need all the support we can get. So what does that look like, support for this work of repentance? Let me say a few things here. For starters... Even while nobody can repent for you, repentance is not something we do alone. Nobody can repent for you, but repentance is not something we do alone. In this parable, the tree in the parable represents us. And that tree moved towards healing. We move towards fruitfulness with help from other people. We are gardeners who assist each other in this work. And so repentance, in other words, is a part of our fellowship with each other. It's something we do together. I'm sure most of you know about, heard about those 33 Chilean miners who got trapped down underground in 2010. It was a story that made international headlines. For 69 days, these guys were buried down in the dark, way down underground. Little food. They didn't know if they were going to live or die. They were staring death in the face. What you might not know is that in this forlorn situation, they began to evaluate their lives, and they had a lot of regrets. And as this happened, they asked one of their number, a guy called Jose Henriquez, who was a follower of Jesus, they asked him if he would pray for him, and he did. He got on his knees, everybody got on their knees, and the prayer began like this. Lord, we are not the best men, but have pity on us. Have mercy on us. And then Jose got a little bit more specific about the failures represented in that group. He said, Victor over there knows he drinks too much. The other victor knows that he's too quick to anger. Pedro thinks about the poor father that he's been to his little girl. And in the days that followed, 69 days, the most amazing thing happened. These guys would gather up every day. They'd share a little meal, a little bit of tuna, a little chocolate chip cookie, whatever they could scrounge up. They'd listen to teachings from God's word. They'd share their stories. They'd reflect on their shortcomings. They'd confess and pray for forgiveness and change. They were doing the work of repentance. They're in the deep darkness of that mind. They entered into the deep darkness of their lives with one another. And as the people up top were drilling down to save their bodies, God was at work down there to save their souls. That's exactly what we're meant to be doing with and for one another. That's part of what the Bible means when it talks about Christian fellowship. A guy called Jim, who wrote another book of the New Testament called James, puts it like this. Acknowledge your sin to one another. Repent from it, and you shall be healed. That's James 5.16. 
This is about creating a culture here in Christ the King where we can better discern and admit the places where we're stuck, where we realize that human sufficiency ain't going to cut it, where I come to terms with the fact that I need God and that without God, I'm not going to make it. It's a little bit like an AA meeting, except the conversation can be about anything, any struggle, any area of brokenness, any aspect of the darkness. Here's another thing. You don't have to be buried deep down in a dark mine shaft to do this fellowship of repentance work. But it does help to have a few gardening rules, a few little principles for getting into the roots and into the dirt with one another. So let me, let me share in closing three principles, three gardening principles that I found super duper helpful in my own life and in my own ongoing work of repentance. Uh, because like all of you, I have not outgrown it at all. Gardening principle number one, we come into this work, into the fellowship of repentance, aware that all of us are non-optimal. All of us are non-optimal. I want you to look at your neighbor right now and say, you are non-optimal. You are not optimal. This is just true about us. You see, a lot of times, and you know this, a lot of times people come into Christian community, they come into the church and they think, oh, everyone's going to be great here, they're going to be mature, they're going to be healthy, they're going to agree with me, and it's all going to make me feel great about myself. That's what I'm expecting when I go into the church. And then you actually get into a church and you find out, uh-oh, everybody's non-optimal, which is why repentance is needed. You've got to remember that, especially those of you who are idealistic. I've struggled with that. Do not be idealistic. We are non-optimal. Remember that. Gardening principle number two. In the fellowship of repentance, honesty is non-negotiable. Honesty is non-negotiable. We live in a world where there is endless posturing and pretending. But not so with us. At least if God has his way. We take the masks off. We dare to be sinners because that's what we are. We tell the truth about our struggles. We invite others to help us see this truth because sometimes we don't see it very well. And we carry these truths about one another in confidence and with discretion. That's key. Let me tell you a goofy story. It just gives the picture very well. There's a guy who is desperate for a job. And he's walking down the road one day past the zoo and he sees a sign saying that we're hiring at the zoo. So he goes in to inquire and he goes up to the zookeeper and he says, I want, you know, tell me about this job. The zookeeper says to him, i got to be honest with you, it's a little bit unusual. Our gorilla died recently, and we cannot afford to replace the gorilla right now. So I will pay you money to dress up as a gorilla and pretend to be a gorilla at my zoo. And the guy says, well, that is kind of humiliating, but I really need money, so I'll take the job. So he puts on the gorilla suit, gets in the gorilla cage, starts jumping around, beating his chest like a gorilla, and people are watching him. And they're pretty impressed. They like what he's doing. And so he actually starts enjoying the job. He gets, he gets into it, quite enthusiastic about it, starts swinging on the vines like a gorilla. And then next thing you know, he swings over to the adjacent cage where the lion lives. <laughs> and in an instant, the lion is on him. He's got his paws on the guy's chest. And the guy panics, and he blows his cover, and he starts yelling, Help! 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 And then the lion whispers to him, Shut up, you idiot, or we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> Everybody in the zoo is wearing a mask. And so it is in this world of ours. Welcome to the zoo. Because that's where we live. 
Everybody's wearing a mask. I'm okay. I'm doing great. Life is good. I'm so blessed. Failure doesn't bother me. I have a happy mask at church. I have a holy mask. Don't be like that. We've all got root problems. We all need root work. We've got to be honest about this, are you? Are you? And finally, gardening rule number three. This is my favorite. Hope is non-perishable. And thank goodness. Hope is non-perishable. We are not idealistic, but we are hopeful, profoundly hopeful. Let's go back to that Chilean mine real quick. When those guys were stuck down there for 69 days, they had a favorite Bible story. It was the story of Jonah and the whale. You want to know why? Because if God, if, they, if that Jonah could be saved by God, then maybe God could save them too. He could bring them out of the dark abyss. That story gave them a lot of hope. And here's the thing. Here's what I have the privilege and the joy of sharing with you today is that God has saved and God is saving like that, you and me and everybody else in this world that needs to repent. And it's right here in the story that Jesus is telling. It's right here in his little parable. Because according to this parable and according to the Bible much more broadly, one of the basic truths about all of us, even sweet little Ellie there, my own children, is that we all deserve from one angle to be cut down and tossed out. I'll talk more about that in another sermon. But from one angle, that's true. We all deserve to be cut down and torn out because we turned our backs on the one who made us in love. But that is not what happens because there's somebody who sees you and sees me and somebody who has compassion on us, someone who sees what we could be and loves the vision of that possibility. A vine dresser. A vine dresser who intervenes and who says, hey, I can turn these wilting and barren trees into splendid plants. Just give me some time. I'm going to put my all into it. I'm going to give it everything I've got. And in fact, if push comes to shove, I'd rather be cut down myself and tossed out than to have that happen to them, than to have that happen to you. And that's exactly what did happen. That happened when Jesus Christ allowed himself to be hung on a cross because it was in that moment that he was cut down and thrown out so that we would never be. It was in that moment that he didn't just shed his tears, he shed his blood into the soil of our lives that we might regain our health, that we might blossom and become fruitful, bloom into splendid plants. That has been done and that can never be undone. And Don't you ever let anyone tell you otherwise. And so we shall have life. We shall bear fruit because the one who can make that happen is tirelessly committed to us and the word failure is not in his vocabulary. That's the basis of our hope and that's why it is an imperishable hope because it's not based on our circumstances or fate or fortune. It is grounded in the one who was and is and shall be. And when we meet together in the fellowship of repentance to get into the roots and the dirt, we always proclaim this hope to one another, always, always. We speak into each other's lives. We speak it so that when we backslide, and I will and you will, we don't lose heart. This hope has the last word. It is the root of our existence. I speak to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.